I'm Helen Lowe, and this is Naked Conversations, Women Uninterrupted, a series of dialogues I'm sharing with a soul friend and fellow life learner, Lisa Fitzhugh, because we believe that relating to self and other with honesty and vulnerability unlocks the transformational potential needed in a world poised for collapse. While some might challenge the notion that conversation is a catalyst for real change, we trust this most humble of actions is precisely what's needed to dismantle what doesn't work and cultivate a more inclusive and sustainable way of being. Whoever you are, we're honored to have you in the conversation. We're back. We're back. And conscious communication is on our minds. Um, what does that even mean, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> right? I know because it sounds, it sounds like some sort of tacky book cover. <laughs> um, you know, not, nonviolent communication has become um, more visible uh, in our culture. I think more organizations are leaning into conscious communication in all kinds of different forms. That's but one of them. Um, I studied back in the early 2000s with Kathleen and Gay Hendricks, who have written, I don't know, 20 or something books that have consciousness in the title somewhere, and most of them. And conscious communication and somatic psychology is where they're coming from. I did a two-year apprenticeship with them. Their work has really informed me. But what I came to recognize, Lisa, is that I could use conscious communication as a weapon. Mm. I learned like the rules of how to talk consciously <laughs> <laughs> and then could beat people up with it. <laughs> and yeah. in all these years since, I have learned that conscious communication isn't so much about tools or words to say or patterns of exchange. It's actually something else. And um, I think it's something that you and I are doing together in these conversations. And so maybe, maybe we spend our time today talking about talking, <laughs> listening with listening. I relish that opportunity because a comment I had recently from a dear friend who heard one of our podcasts, it's actually listened to all of them, said that She's finding that just in listening, she's learning more about what a more optimal, alive dialogue looks like and feels like as an observer. But we're like fish swimming in water, and in a way, we need to describe the water, or we need to describe what it's like to be the fish. And um, I, I do think it's something that. Um, has taken me quite a while to get better at and a lot of practice and a lot of bad conversations, conversations that have gone awry or that have been deflating or um, depleting um, or end up feeling more like a debate and, or aren't expansive. They sort of keep us right where we were at the end of the conversation. And, and all of that is fine. There's nothing wrong with any of that. I just, 
think this kind of conversation is so rich and um, honoring of each person um, and probably the foundation from which you and I are going to work through difficult stuff together as it emerges. So that's a long way of my saying, I agree with you, Helen. Let's talk about conscious communication. <laughs> um, so one of the, the things that I maybe could bring to this conversation is before we got on this call, um, a friend forwarded uh, an article that was a critique of uh, the mindfulness movement. And embedded in this critique was, um, was a criticism of people paying too much attention to themselves and their own experience, right? And at the expense of maybe realizing larger systemic issues and taking action. But yet at the, at the core of, of these conversations, I think if we are successful at all in our conversations with each other and, you know, in our, in our lives outside of this podcast, it's to the extent in which we have become self-aware that self-awareness actually allows us to take what could be called conscious communication tools and use them to bring us together with people and use them to bring out the best in ourselves and others. And um, to the extent that I need to be right, I'm going to miss a perspective that might point out how I'm missing something. Um, and I only know that I am really attached to being right if I can look at myself honestly. And so maybe even just there, that maybe the, the essence of conscious communication is this uh, willingness to see ourselves and see the other as different than me, we might want it to be or that we might have thought we were or they were, the situation was. We have to be willing to let what's happening to us and then information that's coming in change us and change our perception of things. The other place, and you mentioned nonviolent communications right at the start, because in the whole nonviolent communication training, it's all about getting in touch with your needs, the needs-based communication, and needs like connection, autonomy, love, belonging, creativity, um, uh, there's quite a number of authentic needs we might have. And what I notice is, is that most of the time, we are not in touch with our authentic core needs that I've, some of those that I've just described. And we spend a lot of time wandering through the world, seeking to get those needs met through the external world, through relationships, through um, engagements with others. And yet the leap, of course, is to remember that the needs that we have are ultimately met first by ourselves through a kind of attending that we have versus then looking out to the world to constantly getting it met. And so 
where I saw needs-based communication kind of go awry is when people were, they kind of got a sense for their need and then they would communicate to that to someone that they were in conflict. For instance, you know, Helen, I have, a, I have really have this need for belonging and I, and, um, and I'm wondering if, if you can work with me on blah, blah, blah. But they were so attached to once they put that need out there, the recipient then say, oh gosh, you have a need, let me meet it for you. Or that me, oh, let's drop everything. You've got a need. <laughs> um, again, it was the pulling, take care of this for me, yeah. versus the sitting with the discomfort of I have this need and I'm going to show it to you. And I'm not going to know if you can do anything about it. And I'm not even sure how I get it met myself. But I'm going to show that to you as a way to expand our seeing of each other. Mm. And from that place, we could maybe grow and be in less conflict. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the tricky things with um, approaching communication um, from that perspective, as you describe it, is that it seems pretty easy to be on uh, what's been called the drama triangle, Cartman, um, psychologist, I think it was the 60s or 70s, we'll put it in the show notes, identified this drama triangle that humans are often in, and he named it the victim, the perpetrator, the rescuer as the three primary roles that we kind of can step into interchangeably. And um, when I mentioned before my apprenticeship with Katie and Gay Hendricks, we spent a lot of time working with that triangle and um, and the names were shifted to victim, villain, and hero. And I, they're epic archetypes, right? They're in everything. They're in all of our songs and our movies and our novels. And, and, you know, kids grow up and play the good guys and the bad guys, right? It's the villain and the hero. And the villain and the hero always need a victim to, like, argue about, right? <laughs> it's between them. But what I hear embedded in what you're describing with this needs-based communication it doesn't account for when am I standing in the position of feeling like a victim and thinking that you are the hero that can save me from the way that I feel. And, and what I hear you speaking to when you talk about the vulnerability is it seems like just the first step is to say, to say what cannot be debated you know, and that's that I feel this certain way or I'm perceiving something right? That's, it's hard to argue with how somebody else is seeing or perceiving the world. You know, I could choose to argue and tell them that they're wrong or they're crazy, but the fact that that's what's going on for them isn't really up for debate. It's um, not up for debate. I've, I've, it's, it's, I've said the same thing to people. It's funny when there's this resistance to acknowledging the feeling that's in them, in their observation or their interpretation of the world to just sit, to just own the feeling. Um, it's the, it's almost the safest place to be ironically. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's an exercise I'll do where you take a picture, just a photograph and you have everyone, a group of people all look at the same photograph and you ask everyone, okay, let's just name all the facts. What are all the data points in this photograph that we can agree on? 
And it's so funny how we quickly start interpreting. And I'll say, no, 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 what are the facts? This is, there's a yellow hat in the middle of the frame that appears to be a woman standing, but we don't know. But, you know, there's a wall covered with graffiti. Well, how about there's a wall with lots of sketches on it? We, so breaking it down to really, and it's so hard because we want to make meaning. We want to tell the story. Then I'll say, okay, now let's go for it. What's your interpretation of the, of the picture? And wow, we're all over the place and there's interpretations and everyone's kind of, and that's when the conflicts start arising because my interpretation of the fact is different than someone else's interpretation. And now we're threat. I can feel the hackles going up. Oh, your interpretation is different than mine. And we're looking at the same photo, which is just reality that we're all looking out on. And then I ask everybody, okay, what does this photo make you feel? Mm-hmm. And the room gets really quiet. And suddenly people start talking about their feelings. The conflict goes away completely. And all you notice is that people sit in a kind of wonder about people's feelings. And they say, wow someone's feeling sadness over here and someone's feeling euphoria over the same image. And, and that opens us up to a kind of what, how could this be instead of getting caught in the interpretation world where we were stuck in conflict, Mm -hmm. but the pointing to our feelings gave us the ground from which to then work from that felt more, quiet and honoring and somehow um, was going to be the glue that brought us together. So I, I guess I think that experiment is pretty fascinating. It's a great exercise. I mean, it's fascinating for so many reasons, but it has people have the direct experience of noticing that the thing they most don't want to do, which is to be in their feeling and kind of own that feeling is the stepping point out for connection and and um, and 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 less conflict? Yeah. Ironically, in this criticism of mindfulness, uh, um, popularized mindfulness, I, I should say, is this critique of seeing things from an individual perspective versus you know a collective perspective, but. But it's not an either or. It's both an individual and a collective experience. And the exercise you just described, the fight comes out when we can actually share our individual perspectives um, in a vulnerable way. And and we actually then can maybe bridge and start to think about uh, the collective when the individual is honored. You know, when our own unique experience is honored for what it is, which is ours. It doesn't make it right or wrong for anybody else, but it's ours and it matters. And every person's perspective matters. And that feels like a bridging point that um, kind of steps over the need to be right or not. You know, can we start to have conversations at the level of there is no right or wrong or, you know, it's just what is. Well, what I guess I'm a little humbled by the truth of how often that exercise provoked very strong reactions when we started to interpret a photograph. Because if 
I can start to feel the level of conflict rising as we're doing a completely non-threatening exercise. We're looking at a photograph. Not, we're, not, we're not looking at um, the political landscape right now. We're not looking at anything that has great stakes for anyone. And yet I feel the intensity of the engagement rising and the, the attachment and, and the real discomfort with someone's interpretation of this data in the photograph being different than their own. And it's almost as if in that moment you want to say, can we all just stop for a second and just breathe to create more room for all of these different interpretations to be in the same room? Because there's no reason that all of it isn't true because it's all, you're all seeing it. Right. Right. So the problem is not that we're having difference. The problem is we're not making enough room for it. Yeah. And, and I'm, I get curious, you know, my mind goes to why is that right? Why is that? And my, my sense is, is, you know, as children, there so often isn't space. And for some people, there's way less than others. Some there's absolutely none to have a different experience than our parents or caregivers. You know, there's no space for difference for our unique perspective. And I think so many of us, our whole lives, have wanted our perspective to be validated. And so now that we're grown up, you know, we still want our perspective to be validated. It's like we've got a lifetime of unvalidation <clears throat> or devalidation or, or marginalization. Again, some of us way more than others um, built up in us. So it's like we're desperate to have our own position validated. That seems one really perhaps important contribution to that need to be right or have things be seen our way. Oh, and it's so easy at that point to then to forgive each other for this, what feels like this fierce attachment to the need to have our point of view be the right point of view, be the just, the just point of view. Um, when, um, when you remember, I remember for myself uh, how, how, silenced I felt I really did need to um, agree with the primary caretakers point of view it was essential that I not challenge that it was too much already um, for her to to handle all everything that life was at throwing at her to then to, to and she needed an ally Mm -hmm. And I could feel how much my, my single parent needed an ally. And so I adapted to that to say, yeah, I am your ally and I will not bring forward my, I will not make my point of view, force you to, to look at it or consider it or feel it. And, and that's how we'll get through this time together. Mm -hmm. And then as an adult to be released from that, I can look, very directly into the patterns of um, seeking to finally have my point of view take up some room and then how much room it took up in excess. I took more room than I might have needed 
because I was so compressed for such a long period of time. So just to think of your own experience gives you this moment to consider that every other person you're running into comes from some place of, of that deep lack from early on. Mm. And um, it's easier for me to move towards understanding and ultimately forgiveness of what appears to be abhorrent sometimes behavior mm -hmm. by others who are not going to give an inch. Yeah. And it's unconscious. So if, if we can create a little space in ourselves and just listen to the other, you know, they might be able to create a little space in themselves, but somebody, somebody has to be willing to create some space. So that goes right to this listening piece. Um, in the last 10 minutes or 15 minutes ever since we've been on the call, I've really noticed how I'm listening to you. Mm -hmm. And I drop everything else that's going on possibly in my brain. Like there's a lot going on around us right now. Mm -hmm. I can see where you are. I know you're in transition. Um, I can hear planes. There's potentially a cat that wants to go out, out of doors in my house. Um, there's a lot of stimulus. And I tune all of that out. And when you're talking, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid that I'm not going to have anything to say when you're done. <laughs> I'm not concerned that you, at this point, that you might say something that will challenge me. Who cares? Great. That'll make it more interesting. Um, I'm really eager to hear your perspective because it's different than mine. And I can feel that the more fully attentive I am to you, you, like, you get thicker and more texture and like, there's just more there when I'm listening to you completely and not letting anything else get in the way. And um, it's relatively simple. I mean, I know it's hard to do, but just the quality of listening, that's what's happening in my, on my end. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could share then what's happening on your end when you're feeling mm -hmm. that kind of attention. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to I answer both things, um, how, how it feels when I receive that kind of attention and also what's happening over here because my experience is a little different and I'll, maybe I'll start there because I, I sometimes find that I've, I've closed everything out and there's like this um, telescoping of awareness be kind of between you and me, you know, but more often I feel like I'm very aware of all that's going on and I keep coming back to the subtleties of my felt experience, the subtleties of what you're saying, um, the subtleties of um, uh, a sense of feeling that arises in me as you speak and as I speak. So it's like it's perhaps two sides of the same coin that there's a way in which everything else goes away, and there's also a way in which everything can be included and my priority is the connection. Oh, that's a really nice articulation. It's, I wonder if I could practice doing it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like that a lot. That feels very relaxing. 
<laughs> so to the second question though, how does yes. it feel to be on the receiving end of the listening? Well, I notice when I feel you fully present with me, I feel more relaxed. I feel encouraged. Uh, I feel like my perspective is valued or I, I perceive that my perspective is valued. And so it takes kind of the hurry out of my own aligning with what's here and what's coming through me. Um, I notice that sometimes the pace of our conversations will get excited about something and we'll want to add and we're very generous with each other. But even in our generosity, I notice sometimes when we speed up, I do what arises in me is like, oh, I want to get this out. Right. And yeah. I should say it really fast because Lisa wants to say something too. And I should say this really fast. <laughs> um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a noticing the juxtaposition. I can feel when a thought arises. I can feel it when a thought arises in you that really wants to be shared. It's palpable and it's not a problem. It's just palpable. And I so appreciate and have come to trust that you can hold that and still be present with me. That you can hold what arises in you um, and still keep listening to me. And that's a skill, right? That's, that's something that we have to practice over time, in my experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to um, thank you for saying that because that, that um, I, I, I think we could do more in all of our relationships to articulate when how good it feels when someone is deeply listening to us and if 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 we take the time to say let me just tell you a few things that happened to me when you listen to me that well mm. i think that kind of validation would go such a long way in helping us remember to come back to that quality of listening with each other because it feels really wonderful to know that you feel encouraged and valued when i bring this quality of listening in with us you know I've, and it sounds, you know, it, it, it sounds obvious, but actually it's, it's profound because that's a gift. That's a blessing. So let's take this inquiry into a larger setting. So we've been talking about how this works between us and how powerful it is. And I'm wanting to uh, look at the way it works in a larger group way more factors, way more people involved, everyone coming to the table with obviously very different perspectives and needs and um, all kinds of quests for relevance going on there. And, and, uh, and I will say that one of the things that I notice about the quality of this kind of listening and communication is it's extremely efficient. And it's hard. That's a paradox for some people because they notice, well, wait, we're slowing down. We're um, allowing room for feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's all kinds of ways where it would throw our rational mind off to believe that this could be more efficient. And yet, I've had so many experiences of that being so true. There's numerous examples that I can pull from, but I'd also just say that when we don't make room for feelings and uh, everyone's perspective, what's happening that we can't see is energetically what we talked about, which is people wanting to feel valued and be seen. 
that unmet need in them starts pulling on the energy of the group. And it pulls it in a, twists it and kind of distorts it in such a way that it starts to get tight. And there's less room for, for more expansive conversation, for more creative problem solving. And what's interesting is you can't see it. It's, an, it's part of this energetic field that starts to get created um, that you can quickly um, and very efficiently um, avoid that tension and that buildup, which pulls on our innovation and our ability to solve problems quickly by carving out just a little time in the beginning for everyone to come into the space with not just I'm fine, but a little bit more context of where you are in that moment, the kind of emotional state you might be in, even if it's the emotional state you might be in is sort of, I'm not very present today. I've got a lot on my mind. Making that explicit and basically sort of adjusts the energy of the room and gives it, um, then it doesn't do the pulling. And I, it sound, this is sort of sounding abstract. Can I interject? Is that all right? Definitely, definitely. It's clearly not abstract at all. In my experience, it's like the energy is in the room anyway. Mm -hmm. And if it's not made visible, it will hijack um, the conversations. People will be obstructionist or um, Mm -hmm. argumentative or withholding of information that's important or whatever unconsciously in response to there not being enough space for them to show up as, as they actually are. If I may, I'd like to just share that, that how I got introduced to this phenomenon uh, almost coming up on 20 years ago with, again, Katie and Gay Hendricks. I, I owe so much to them and, and, and beginning to really open my eyes about what's going on unconsciously. Katie would ask people in the, in the, she'd be facilitating a large group of us uh, apprentices and she'd uh, notice behavior and that was kind of flagging, if you will, was making visible something unconscious going on. And she might say something like, Helen, are you wanting attention? And I felt busted, right? And at the beginning, I felt shame at wanting attention. And I went, oh no, I don't want to, I don't know, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, kind of, you know. But but with practice, I got to feel okay and comfortable with, yeah, I just want attention. I just want to be recognized or or more refined and more specifically, some energy in me wants space and wants my attention. And I'm having a hard time giving it attention. Could you help me give it attention? Might even be what I was asking for. And so we created this safe space to um, practice being with and learning to recognize in ourselves when something was hijacking our attention. You know, and maybe that even gets to be over all these years. I get to practice. How do I include all that's here and still pay attention to you, Lisa, when you're speaking? It's because I've had a lot of practice paying attention to what's happening just in Helen and what wants her attention, you know. And maybe I now, with a lot of practice, need you to pay attention to me a little bit less than I might have 20 years ago, right? Because I'm 
learning how to pay attention to myself. But if we shame people for being individualistic, right? We, we say if your focus on yourself is selfish, it's just making those natural impulses go undercover even more and, and pop up in these perhaps even more troublesome ways in our organizations, our systems. So Yes, we need to have this opportunity. And I love this idea. And it's very um, indigenous, I think, too. It's like you pass around the talking stick or something like this. You know, it's different in different cultures, but give everybody a space to speak and voice. Yes. And I've often found that as a facilitator, and one, a facilitator whose style is um, very much with the group, not outside the group is I um, commit and I have a kind of a devotional practice to bring my feelings forward, to um, uh, open up questions that might not seem to have a lot of answers, to be in a circle of people with all of me there, Mm -hmm. not just the strategic head of me (laughs) that Oftentimes it feels like that's all the group appears to have a welcome mat for because we're all there, quote unquote, to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. So just bring your strategic hat. But if we, if all we bring is that strategic hat that we wear, we put on, um, what happens is, is exactly what you describe is a ton of hijacking goes on. There is so much going on beneath the strategic hat of unmet needs and need for validation and valuing and a lot of emotional material that is unsorted and chaotic with us. And it gets more chaotic the more tightly we try to maintain the illusion. Can everyone just bring their heads in here to solve these problems? I want to just point out because it might help to even see it at the global level or at the at least that at here in the United States at the national level like our congress can't get anything done i mean the senate is total gridlock right because everybody is so focused on being right and it is it is a sign of weakness to listen and and <clears throat> appreciate uh have sensitive attention to the perspective of the quote other. Um, It's almost like a crime to see the other as human, to see the the other as having validity, Mm. um, Mm. possessing of any kind of truth or feeling. We make each other out to be monsters. um, And we're so needing to be right. So it's easy to see it out there, right? Because it's such a problem and we see the gridlock. But, and, and what I hear you inviting us into is, is then to bring it a little closer and now even see how that's happening in our boardrooms, in our staff rooms, in our bedrooms, (laughs) um, all the places in which that same behavior that's so obvious out there um, is happening actually here at this individual level. It's something just wants to be heard and have space for it. Before I can move on, I need to feel heard by myself first and foremost, but it sure helps uh, if others can help me do that uh, until I learn how to do that for myself. Yeah. I just had this image of uh, really trying to sit across the table from our president, our current president, 
um, while he's sitting there spouting off what I perceive as kind of insanities, you know, just seeing the woundedness behind that. Um, so what, I can't do that right now, but I, couldn't, I can do that with someone closer to me that is in my community that is disagreeing with me about a particular strategy in an organization I'm involved in. Um, I can do that. I can sit with wonder about what's informing them and what's fueling them and what emotional needs they have that I can't see, but that are valid for them. Um, and every time I've given space to that, whether I've been a co-member of a group or a facilitator in a group, um, I do witness a transformation happening both in myself and with the other person. We're not the same after that interaction when I've really let go of my need to have it be any differently or to know why <laughs> and instead to just sit in sort of the wonder around it. And, and then take it to the next level. That that's when that relationship then starts to um, grow me because I've allowed more to be true about them and all of their mystery. And suddenly now I move into that mystery space. So I'm expanded versus cutting it out. I've, I'm, not, I'm not trying to shut it down because it's scary or I don't agree with them or it or the idea. I'm expanding into the possibility that that mystery is true for them. It's tr and so it's very much true. And I can feel myself getting bigger it's liberating because I'm not the smaller self afraid of what's outside of me. I'm the bigger self that just made room for more uh, of what's going on around me. Very different though it may be. And I've had some tough interactions in the last couple of years with people I really didn't want to include. <laughs> <laughs> I did not want to give room to their, what felt like neuroses or... Sometimes it feels like uh, their real inadequacy or emotional immaturity. Oh, look at all that judgment. Uh, but taking away the labels and creating just more room for witnessing, they seemed more um, available to me as just divine sovereign creatures who were here to... Uh, to, to grow with. I was here to grow with and learn from. What's interesting about the drama triangle is that there's no space for creativity. There's no space for wonder. There's no space for not knowing all the things that you and I have been talking about as being so valuable to intimacy, to having a creative life, to even problem solving requires being able to sit in the unknown and the drama triangle no matter which role we're in whether we're trying to rescue ourselves or somebody else or whether we're feeling at the effect of um, life or someone else or or we're blaming someone else or ourselves even um, there's no there's no space of creativity in that and there's really no presence in that either like we're in a relationship with our mental constructs, our stories. And so in that situation, even when you say when you're having conversations with 
people you didn't really want to include, right? But we, we don't have any space. And how I appreciate what you seem to be saying is that when you can just be present with them, make them human, you step off of this triangle. Um, that's the only time. You, there's no guarantee that anything will will change, but that's the only time anything possibly could change. Yeah. It's, I find that I'm getting extremely bored with the idea that someone is a villain, that someone is the problem. I, I've gotten to the end of my interest in that story. Amen. I like it. it's a story that's been told so many times by myself and by the collective. Early on when I stopped watching TV and people like when I was working in an office situation, people would talk about TV shows and I had no relationship with it. And then they thought I was sitting in judgment of them, which maybe I was at the time, especially. Um, uh, but they're like, oh, we, just, we need to have this escape. We need to have this escape. And it's like, oh, but it actually isn't an escape, right? It's actually magnifying the thing that we're doing all day long and perhaps we even put it in all these places because we some part of us some super conscious part of ourselves is trying to make it visible like hello wake up to that this is what you're up to um and and it's so small we can we can make it exciting. We add more action to it and more special effects to it or, you know, more cliffhangers to it, but it's actually quite predictable. It's the same story over and over again. And to be on the receiving end of the switch that goes on in our brains between victim and villain. So notice how quickly we become each other's hero or villain in the flip of a switch in the blink of an eye. Um, maybe you do something that's like what I presume to be out of character or, you know, any number of things and, and, and it triggers some story. And suddenly you can go from hero to villain in two seconds in my mind. Mm -hmm. And that feels very fragile. That doesn't feel resilient. Um, great point. That's a great point. You know, and I guess what I value is resilience in relationships, not fragility in them. And in organizations, I see relationships being hyper fragile mm -hmm. or deeply um, mechanized or untended. And, and then people have just gotten stuck in a, in a hero, victim, villain role for years and they can't seem to get out. Um, so how do we get out of this, Helen, without having to reach a boredom threshold? Right. It, it may not be we have time to wait for everyone to get bored with it. <laughs> Might be waiting what, a really long time. Could we, it, it means, is there something else that we could offer today as we're talking that is like a kind of a fail-safe way to experiment? with shifting the dial just enough so that we see the, 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 the adventure that's possible outside of that triangular complex. I, I, you invite us to an interesting exploration. Um, and I want to for, first say something about the boredom because um, 
becoming bored with it is one way uh, that we might decide to explore stepping out of that drama triangle. Um, another way, though, is to realize that all like problems themselves exist in the drama triangle. So if we find ourselves in a situation that looks like a problem, there's most certainly some aspect of the drama triangle at play there. I was, I was with a group recently and had invited um, some play around this drama triangle and, and kind of watching how we play these different roles. Um, and someone said, it's hard to know when I'm on it. Like I'm, I'm, their learning edge was like, when am I on it? And I, I said, when you're not having any fun, like when, you, <laughs> that's a great sign, you know, um, when everything looks like a problem, that's a great indication that you're on the drama triangle, like pause and look, because that feels like the yeah. most important step before we can get off of it. Yeah. We have to just recognize when we're on it. So. I'm going to point out something that you just did in our exchange. I think it's really important to point out about the practice of conscious communication. When I talked about boredom and then I said, I talked about boredom. I said, so Helen, is there another solution? You actively and intentionally spoke to the thing that I wanted to talk about next. And you said, I see you, I value you. I'm going to go there but I want to go back to this boredom piece and make a connection. So you've made my nervous system more relaxed because you, you, you acknowledged everything that was coming at you and you as, and versus you could have just said, well, let me talk about the boredom piece again. And part of me might at that moment been like, Oh, she didn't pick up on what I wanted to talk about. Uh, okay. And then I wait for it and I wait for it. Meanwhile, I'm holding all this weird energy because I'm not going where I thought we were going to go. But you actively responded to the whole buffet that I put out there and let me relax into that. And I dropped my need to talk about the quick fix or wherever I was going with that and went with you. Hmm. So I'm just pointing that out to make it more and more explicit to people who listen to our conversation what we're doing, what we're actively doing. And when I see people in large groups practice this kind of acknowledging what everyone has just said. So if, 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 if you speak and I acknowledge a piece of that and then I go to the next place and then the next person acknowledges, even maybe they acknowledge the last two people, mm -hmm. the quality of the communication becomes sublime. Mm -hmm. And it's not in practice in group dynamics to acknowledge each other's statements, values, needs. We, we don't do it. We just keep moving in the quest for lots of things. So I'm just going to offer that the tool, this tool you just practiced the very dynamically, I think is the, one of the simplest ones that allows for a stepping outside of the victim triangle because it responds at a deep level to the nervous system, which only goes to the victim villain when it's not happy, <laughs> when it's feeling unsafe, you know? So you gave me some safety, 
I didn't have to go to that place. And then it kept moving. The conversation kept moving in a natural way, except when I just stopped it just now. And made it stop. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's what we should, that we're trying to break it down for folks. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you breaking it down. And I want to add to that, that one of the things about conscious communication, and I think it's also embedded in nonviolent communication um, specifically, uh, although that's not my specialty, um, is this what some people call active listening, where you repeat back to people what they've just said. And I don't actually find that uh, as a speaker valuable. I actually can find that really irritating um, because. Uh, it's very often that people can't verbatim <laughs> repeat back to me what I just said, and I don't want them to, right? What I want to know is that what I said landed. Um, and, and so that could be a tool um, to practice um, repeating back what the other person said. But what I notice happens then is that I start trying to memorize what you said. <laughs> right? Instead of really being affected by it. And if we practice instead presence, if we practice being present and really receiving, we can organically, which is what just happened with you, I just organically recognized that you wanted to advance the conversation and also recognize that there was something in me that wanted to tie back to a prior part of the conversation. And then I could include both things from my perspective versus trying to summarize for, for you whatever I thought I heard you say, you know. And really, the alternative to the drama triangle is deep presence, is being present with each other. And if we're deeply present with each other, it's like we'll almost know what to say. We're more aligned with our, in, our intuitive wisdom, our, our, our embodied knowing. Because if I just memorize these steps, I'm, I'm no more conscious or present. I'm, I'm, I'm robotic. <laughs> Um, but trying to be a good girl or boy, you know, and, um, and if I can just practice presence then the right words will come or they won't. And then we'll deal with that too. We'll include that too. I'm not afraid of conflict. I might, or I might feel afraid about conflict, but I'll, I'll have the courage to, to speak and connect anyway. Yeah. Just got an image in my mind of these different tools that we get they're handrails that assure us on some level that we're kind of going in the right direction. And we are because it, it certainly when someone practices repeating what someone said, it's kind of a way of training the mind to affirm. And it's why facilitated conversations can be really helpful. Um, one of the things that I offer is uh, I've mentioned it before catalyst calls. They're basically facilitated dialogues and, and we'll have a practice of dropping in and getting more connected with ourselves before we attempt to connect with each other. Another thing that I do in those catalyst calls is model um, vulnerability, uh, what it's like to share one's self um, in sometimes kind of risky ways to sharing not only some of the 
the details of the logistics of life, but also the felt experiences and, and the made up stories. And then I can model how someone shares their experience. Um, and then I, I just offer something that lets them know that they're heard, you know, uh, what did I hear? Not in a gratuitous way, but what, what, um, authentically and spontaneously arose in me as that person was sharing. When another person shares and then another person shares, what if I'm present, I can start to help to tie together the threads like you had mentioned before. Can you start to make visible that there's actually an interconnectedness happening in our gathering here that we're all feeling and is actually getting expressed through our quote check-ins, but we may not be receiving um, that interconnectedness. And so having a facilitator to make some of that visible gives us a kind of guardrail, if you will, to practice this, to practice this. And what's really beautiful is that some people in the beginning say they show up and they're not even sure what they're getting. Like, why am I showing up for these calls? Cause we, we aren't a board trying to solve a problem. We're not at a staff meeting and we're not even um, close friends wanting to catch up. Some of these people have never met in person ever before. And yet we come together on these Monday nights. Why do we do this? Well, it's so healing to be in a space where people are listening to each other deeply when they're given permission to show up more fully, that in itself is healing and that in and of itself is making a difference in their other relationships, is inviting them to be with other people uh, in different ways that is much more generative and nourishing and kind. And what I've noticed over the, the months is that the conversations need less and less facilitation. People are starting to do for each other what it was only I doing initially in the early stages. So what comes to mind as you say this is, I mean, your Monday night calls are a group of people who don't have, they're not part of an organization, they're not part of a group that regularly gathers. So take a group that's got shared purpose and has clarity, ideally, around their shared purpose, and build this kind of foundation of cohesion and connection and belonging. And it's, let's take the learning of what we can see from a group of anonymous people coming together, and just simply take that learning and bring it in to a situation where there's even a more robust potentiality because of there's a collective mission that they share, a shared purpose that they share. Part of what happens, I think, in our structures is that the stakes feel really high because we need to earn money or we need to prove ourselves valuable. We need to accomplish certain missions. And, and all these feel really time sensitive and urgent. And we get very serious and people can get so serious that there is no tolerance for the, the, the humor of our humanity. <laughs> and we take our humanity so seriously. This is, 
This is very serious business. It's so serious. I know. Gosh. And and we think that laughing or levity is uh-huh. to sidetrack us. <laughs> um, but levity and uh, and laughing can often and just laughing at ourselves. We don't have to. We don't have to spend a lot of time, but practicing to acknowledge, like, oh my God, I was just so on the victim position right there. Or if just make fun of myself, not to belittle myself, but to not take myself so seriously. And then we don't have to spend a whole lot of time analyzing. It's not like our meeting is going to become a psychotherapy session, but we could just um, then move on, right? And again, facilitated uh, practices at this are very helpful. I'm not saying that we're going to be wildly successful out the gate, but that's a way, like, when we don't take ourselves so seriously, then we have the opportunity to step out of that, that drama dynamic and into something that's way more spacious. Absolutely. Some of my most successful interventions, I call them interventions. I don't know if that's a very good word, but help and support of groups that are working with a lot of conflict, or maybe there's a lot of emotional material that's hijacking everything all the time is to introduce this concept of role-playing, acting out their day-to-day conflicts. Notice what happens all the time that where they get stuck and take a moment to just pl- play it out for pretend. And I've had some of the greatest success in doing that because they laugh the entire time And they are able to see themselves in ways where they can see the absurdity of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, it's like a quick absurdity measure for them. And and notice, much more easily, a way to step out of it. It's the most immediate release from where we feel stuck. Mm -hmm. And everyone sees it and goes, wow, that was easy. (laughs) Versus churning and ruminating and stewing and getting stuck in imagining that someone else is a villain. We just played it out. It became a play. Everyone participated and there was a lot of joy. So it has an efficiency for learning that I've not quite seen in in most other interventions, however you want to call it. And not everyone's ripe and ready for it as a group immediately. There's some, some I'd call foreplay that's needed sometimes where we just get to know each other the capacity for play comes in pretty fast because of our humanity. Very real problems in my experience can get solved when we lighten up and we give each other our attention. We're deeply present and and we're playful. But then how do we start to make requests of each other? How do we give each other feedback? I mean, there's, there's so many places that I think we could take this conversation. So given the realities of, of life and the limitations of this particular time, maybe we say that those could be future yeah. threads of conversation. Until next time. This has been Naked Conversations, Women Uninterrupted. If our conversation inspired or provoked you, we hope you'll start a meaningful exchange with the people in your life. We're grateful to Kevin McLeod, who generously provided this music, and to artist Tom X, a dear friend of Lisa's, for providing the beautiful painting that graces our show title. 
Until next time, may we all remember the sometimes miraculous power of real dialogue and practice having kind, curious, and naked conversations.